Is it? How do you pronounce your last name? Cohane. Oh, Cohane. Yeah, that's ironic. Why? Because it rhymes with cocaine. Oh yeah, no, boy. <laughs> that's the first time I've ever heard. Oh that. yeah, right. <laughs> Edward Cohane. I was thinking, wow. I hope I can pronounce this. Not a problem. <laughs> That is true. <laughs> it's time for the Share Recovery Podcast, where we bring you amazing life-changing success stories from addicts and alcoholics all over the world who share their inspiring journey in recovery. And now, here's your host, Oh. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of TSP, the Share Podcast. And today we have Ed Cohane joining us on the show. Today's episode, brace yourself because it's a roller coaster ride. As we get deep into this interview, you'll find that it's very emotionally charged. There's just a lot of information in there about the wreckage that this disease leaves behind and all the work that it takes to rebuild all those years of debauchery. This interview is one of my favorites. It's also the one where I myself am the most vulnerable. So prepare yourself, guys, because this, uh, this one's a tearjerker. And again, I want to thank my good friend, Ed, who has been an amazing supporter of the Share Podcast since the beginning. It was really a cool thing to be able to be there for each other. So let's dive into Ed's story. But first, if you would like to know the best way to show your support for the Share Podcast, here are a few ways you can help. First, go to www.thesharepodcast.com, and there you can sign up for our free newsletter, which will let you know every time a new episode of The Share Podcast comes out. You can leave us a five-star rating and review on iTunes or Stitcher Radio. If you would like to know other places that you can listen to The Share Podcast, you can listen to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, iHeartRadio, and YouTube. If you would like to donate to the Share Podcast, you can do so via PayPal, or you can support us on Patreon. We have a thriving Facebook group that grows daily and has massive participation. Again, it's a private group, so if you would like to discuss recovery, share your experience, strength, and hope, help others, or lean on others for support, be sure to join the Facebook private group. And all of this information can be found on the website. So go to the website, and there you will find all the information that you need to help support the show. So now a quick message from our sponsors, and on to the show. Sober Nation is the largest online recovery community and treatment resource center. They provide treatment resources to those struggling with addiction, as well as to the family members who are caught in the crossfire. On top of that, Sober Nation is a huge community of good people who share their experience with each other. They have informative content, recovery and addiction news, as well as an entire clothing line which helps expand the culture of recovery. They can easily be found at www.SoberNation.com. Sober Nation is putting recovery on the map. And finally, would you like to receive the most popular AA daily devotions free in one distribution? Transitions Daily delivers daily devotions from the 24 hours a day, AA thought for the day, daily reflections, big book quote, just for today, as Bill sees it, plus more. You can get our distribution daily via email, private Facebook group, or Twitter. Go to dailyaaemails.com for more information. And don't forget to share dailyaaemails.com with friends in meetings and with sponsees in recovery. Now back to the show. Hey Ed, thanks for joining us. Hey, how you doing? 
Doing awesome, buddy. How you feeling, man? I'm good. I'm good. It's a nice day in uh, southern Missouri. It's, the sun is out, and I'm talking to you, so all is well. I'm pumped, dude. This is excellent. I love it. All right, folks. Today we have Edward Cohane joining us on the Share Podcast. Uh, Ed is very active in the private group, has been a longtime listener to the podcast, huge supporter, um, and he's got a hell of a story. So he reached out to me uh, quite a few months back, and uh, I'm finally getting him on the show. So, Ed, let's dive right in, buddy. You ready? I'm ready to go when you are. All right, let's do this, man. All right, so first, let's talk about what your daily routine looks like today, and then uh, throw in how you maintain your recovery. Well, my days are uh, <clears throat> kind of backwards for most people. I work nights. I work for the post office, uh, the United States Post Office. So I work nights, and so everything's kind of flip-flop. So how it usually begins is I get up after going to work all night after a few hours. Um, I, I go to the gym. I go from the gym, and then I go to uh, a meeting like four to five times a week. I come home. Um, I just hang out. I do yard work, stuff like that, stuff to keep me busy. And then uh, I recently bought a house. So my girlfriend and I, we are now cohabitants. And I have uh, we have her son who's four and a half. And so I go pick him up from school. We hang out till his mom gets home. I usually try to catch a few more hours sleep and then I go to work. So tell us how you maintain your recovery then. Do you make lots of meetings? Do you have to go in the mornings? How does that look? Uh, no, I usually catch my meetings at noon. There's a noon meeting that I go to um, in Springfield, Missouri, about 20 minutes away. I do that roughly four times a week. Um, you know, I have a sponsor who I speak with, you know, several times a week. We work steps. Uh, I currently don't uh, sponsor anyone else because I have a new improved recovery date, which we'll get to. Right. Um <laughs> It's a lot of prayer uh, at work, at night. You know, I'm in my head a lot. I'm in my headphones a lot, which is when I listen to your show. So you're in my head a lot. Nice. Which is kinda, that's kind of crazy to think about. <laughs> but uh, there's a lot of prayer, man, uh, almost continuously, you know, throughout the night and during the day. You know, uh, your will, not mine, be done, shit like that. And I really try to bring my recovery into uh, every area of my life. You know, I know some folks who drop that stuff at the door in terms of the meeting door. Man, I got to carry mine with me throughout the day in every area of my life. Otherwise, I just get lost. And then my recovery gets lost. And I then, I, then I'm truly lost. Yeah, yeah. It makes, it makes a big difference. Uh, well, with that being said, you know, do you have a daily practice, uh, spiritual practice to maintain your your conscious contact with a higher power you know in terms of actually sitting down and meditating i didn't start doing that until i don't know what episode of the rule 62 but you guys were talking about uh meditation and you i think you had michael hilton and stephanie on there and you guys were talking about the calm the calm uh app for your phone right right so at that very time when i was listening to that uh that was in january i think I was going through some turmoil in my recovery, and I thought, you know, that's definitely a facet of my recovery that I'm missing. So I purchased that app, and man, I'm telling you what, like a good addict, I was doing that app like two, three times a day, <laughs> listening to that shit, man. And uh, you know what, though? It really helps. And so, you know, formally, aside from my meetings and aside from all the components of uh, of my recovery, you know, uh, meditation has, I'm still an infant. 
but you know it's become part of my daily practice. Hey, so I, yeah, I do the palm app a lot. It's never too early. It's never too late to start meditating. You know, it's just it's a one day at a time. It's just like anything else, right? right? One day at a time. You pick up these tools that are so necessary, and all of a sudden you realize that it's so beneficial. Uh, I do that. You know, I try as much as possible to get up and do 20 minutes. Sometimes I have the call map on my phone too. I'll use that if there's too much chatter in my head. But most days I can just put, I can sit for 20 minutes and just be silent, you know, and then just, and just ask God to, to guide me and, and to show me how to be of service just for today, right? Like just right. for today, like that, in that moment when I'm meditating, it's just connecting to get me for the next 24 hours. And that way also it's the prelude and reminds me that, well, I got to do the same thing tomorrow. So, so I'm geared up and I got my HP behind me. So, uh, I love it. I love it. So let's, so let me ask you this, as you already mentioned, you have a new clean date. So what is your new clean date? Uh, and how much time you have? My new and improved sobriety date is January 14th of this year. Um, I actually had like three relapses over the last 18 months, which, you know, I'll get to, but before that I had four years and so HP baby, you know, take, you know what it takes, what it takes in that last one, uh, if that's what got me here, then that's what was needed. So no regrets. No, of course not. Okay. So tell us about the time, the first time you drank or used drugs, how old were you? And more importantly, how they made you feel? You know, the story that goes with that, which is a story I don't remember, is I was five and I, <laughs> I, I won bingo. Like my family were all out playing bingo and I won like 25 bucks. And my dad was like, hey, you know, if you give me five bucks, I'll buy a six pack and I'll give you, uh, you know, a beer. And so that's how the story went. In reality, I think what happened was he drank almost all of the one can of beer and gave me a sip. And I think I pissed the bed that night. But I I don't remember, you know, any of this. That's just the story that kind of my family tells, you know. And I believe it's true, but I don't remember that. And, you know, in terms of my first actual drunk, I couldn't tell you. My first drink, I couldn't tell you. Now, my first time getting stoned, I, that is, I can remember that, and I remember it well. Um, I'm one of those people who... I smoked pot like twice before I actually got stoned. And it wasn't because I didn't know how to smoke, because at the time I was smoking cigarettes. But it was probably some dirt, swag, just shitty weed, you know. And <laughs> probably took like a pinch hit or something and, you know, act all stoned or something. But the first time I got stoned, uh, a buddy of mine and I, it was right before a party. We were going to a college party. I think I was a sophomore in high school. And uh, I just remember being baked and tripping. I remember falling upstairs because it was like a blind staircase leading up to this apartment party. This was in central Pennsylvania. And I just remember laughing my ass off. And I remember the two of us looking in the mirror and our eyes were so red, you know. And I remember thinking, because I'd had health class and they talked about, you know, drugs will do this and pot will do this. And I was looking at my eyes going, holy shit, man, they're right. My eyes are really red, you know. But uh, I remember just laughing hysterically, you know, and I love to laugh. (laughs) I I still love to laugh, so... That was my first time that I can remember being intoxicated. 
dude, this is, you know, when we, you know, I, when I interview people, right, it, it's, I forget sometimes the rhetoric behind smoking weed and, and, yeah. and then it's like dirt weed, swag, you know, <laughs> pinch, <laughs> baked. <laughs> I'm sitting here just... <laughs> <laughs> I don't feel like I'm in a like a one of those fucking '80s movies. You know what I mean? Half baked or something. Uh, yeah. <laughs> fucking, yep, yep, yep. Oh man, it never gets old. It never stops being funny, unless, of course, you're actually baked. Right, right. Yeah, then it's not so funny. <laughs> now, now, now it's good. We can talk about it on on this side of the fence. <laughs> too much, too much, Ed. It's time for me to turn this show over to you, buddy. It's time for you to share the battle against drugs and alcohol, the wreckage it caused in your life, when you hit rock bottom, and finally, your journey up until recovery, up until today. So don't leave anything out, Ed. Take it away. All right. Thanks. So so my name's Ed. I'm an alcoholic, and I'm an addict. Hey, Ed. Hey, A-O. And uh, <clears throat> so I'm the youngest of five in a large Irish Catholic family. And usually when I give my story, I, you know, I follow that up with, do I need to give any more explanation as to why I turned into an alcoholic, you know, and, and everybody usually laughs because of the <laughs> Irish tradition of being the youngest kid, you know, but honestly, God, there's no reason why I should have turned out, uh, the way that I did in terms of, you know, being an addict and an alcoholic and all of the collateral consequences that came with that. <clears throat> so I was the youngest and, uh, I'm the youngest by five years. My four siblings are all within a few years of each other. My eldest brother is Down syndrome. And then I have uh, my next oldest brother. He actually passed. Uh, this year marks 10 years. He, he succumbed basically to the collateral consequences of uh, drugs and alcohol. Wow. Um, he had untreated hypertension and uh Anyway, he, he, he passed away. And then I have two older sisters <clears throat> whom, uh, whom I'm real tight with these days. We're all real tight. But uh, we moved around. My dad was high-level, um, you know, a government physician with, with actually federal law enforcement, which may not sound too funny right now. But when I get later on in my story, it, it gets pretty funny. So we moved, we moved all around the country. We were basically like army brats. Every couple of years, my father would get a promotion, and we would, you know, pull up the stakes, move the tents, and we'd move. And by move, I mean we would move like state to state and cross country. We we wouldn't move like to the next town or something like that. Um, I think all told, I moved either twelve or thirteen times um, up until you know, graduating from high school. And as we moved, you know, we would leave, like, we moved from Memphis, Tennessee, we left my brother behind, and then uh, we moved to uh, central Pennsylvania, and left my sisters behind there, and then we moved to uh, Terre Haute, Indiana, and that's where I graduated high school from, and, uh, <clears throat> you know, my parents, my dad got another promotion in the middle of his, uh, or the middle of my senior year of high school, and, you know, I threw the old guilt trip on him about, man, this is bullshit, and you moved me all around, and here I am, and I'm almost going to graduate high school. So, long story short, they left me there. And, man, I was so uh, just immature. You right. know, I, I was, I was, I wouldn't say absolutely spoiled. We we didn't want for anything, or we didn't need for anything, right. rather. I mean, there's plenty more I wanted, but as far as <laughs> need, we didn't need for anything. And I played a lot of sports in high school. And uh, my grades were pretty decent. 
Uh, so I didn't like have to work or anything like that. You know, they bought me a car when I was 16. Uh, so anyway, they moved in the middle of my senior year and I had just turned 17. I was always the youngest kid in school because when I, where I started school in New Jersey, you started when you were four. So that probably added to my immaturity a little bit as well. But when they moved away, man, it was just on, you know, uh, I barely made it out of my senior year of high school. I mean, I, I I skipped so many days when they left. In fact, I I swear to God, the the assistant principal, I remember him calling me and I had been skipping last hour, like all semester, my second semester of my senior year. And they finally caught me, you know, with two weeks to go. And he just had to suspend me, you know, through finals. And he hoped it, you know, didn't impact my ability to graduate. And I was like, you know what, man, I was looking to get out of school these last two weeks. I already took all my finals. So, you know, thanks a lot. And I, you know, jammed out of school. But, you know, it's just a real pattern of irresponsibility um, and unaccountability. I was just laying down for myself. So, you know, right out of high school, I moved in with a couple of friends of mine. And um, I started working at a pizza place and. I remember these people moved upstairs diagonal from us in this apartment building. And these are my first real run-ins with like, they were 20 somethings, you know, probably late twenties. And they used to always come down and use our phone. And I never understood why other than the fact that they didn't have a phone oh. and, and then they would run and they would go meet some people. And, <laughs> you know, I, I didn't, I didn't, I, I didn't get it. You know, and me and my buddies, we all, you know, we drank and we smoked weed and, uh, anyway, they turned out to be like crack addicts, you know, so that was my first endeavor into the hard drugs was crack cocaine, you know, and I, I had this pretty inquisitive mind. And I remember watching this, like going into their apartment and seeing this like rock, like turn instantly to smoke. And I was like, what the fuck, you know, yeah. it's, it's supposed to go from rock to liquid to smoke, but this was going straight to smoke, you know, and I was super curious and boy that curiosity killed the cat and i was like hooked almost instantly uh it was a train wreck you know i dropped out of two semesters i was enrolled at indiana state university and my life was just uh unraveling you know just uh, it was really bad so anyway my friends my high school friends called my dad who was uh, who was a warden at a federal prison in California, oh. and they they said uh, you know Ed Ed's in trouble and Ed's you know needs this and he's doing this and uh, my dad like two days later shows up like knocking on my apartment door and I'm like hey what's going on <laughs> you know my room's just in shambles and just filthy and you know we up and moved to California that day, you know, and when I tell my story, I would say, yeah, man, some of the good decisions I made is I moved from Indiana to California to get away from the drugs, you know, and, and that's what I did. And I moved to California and I quit smoking crack that day, but, uh, you know, on, on the doorstep was methamphetamine, you know, oh, and, man. and here came the mess. <clears throat> so I lived in California for a year and that really began my time of poly substance abuse. Uh, we were going to San Francisco and buying acid at Haight Ashbury, you know, in the Deadhead District, and uh, up all the time on meth. And <clears throat> so I lived in California, and that's what I was, you know, I am in you about as we used to go through San Luis all the time and Pismo Beach and, you know, five cities and loved that part of the country, but I mean, I was awake almost the entire year I lived in California. 
Man, yeah. man. Yeah, hey, listeners, for those of you listening, the reason why it brings that up is because I used to live in San Luis Obispo for 10 years. So that's that's where the connection began. So go ahead, buddy. Yeah, so then, uh, <clears throat> you know, it wasn't quite a year later. We moved to, uh, or my parents, they, my dad got another promotion. Uh, we were moving to Springfield, Missouri, and uh, they didn't know if I was going to go with them or not. They knew that I was using something. But they didn't really know what. And they knew they didn't want to leave me alone in California. So this girl at the time I was dating, she and I, we moved with my parents from California to Missouri. And uh, I moved here to Missouri and realized what a uh, market there was for methamphetamine. And so I began trafficking uh, methamphetamine from California to Missouri. And, you know, oh, I remember I was probably four or five months deep in this thing. And I just remember, I mean, it was just, you know, bringing in all kinds of money. And uh, really what it was, it was really just a great excuse to prolong my drug addiction and use whatever kind of drugs I wanted in whatever, you know, manner I wanted. And along the way, I was on my way to California to purchase uh, a large quantity of methamphetamine. And we, we got a hotel in Needles, California, and uh, in a hotel room in Needles, California, is the first time where I put a needle in my arm. And, uh, you know, it wasn't even planned. It wasn't even until later when I looked back and I thought, man, that's kind of ironic. You know, I'm in Needles, California, and I'm putting needles <laughs> in my arm. <laughs> I just got it now. <laughs> so, so, yeah, I was a little slow on the uptake. Yeah, right? Oh. I was like, oh, oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, man, it, it, that was about... Uh, a month before I got into trouble. And I remember thinking, man, I'm either going to get arrested or I'm going to die because it just had, I was young and immature and had all kinds of money. And, uh, Hey, how long's the drive from California to Missouri? It is exactly 24 hours. <laughs> Dude. So you have to stop how many times on the way? Uh, you mean like overnight? Yeah, or do you go? Do you drive straight twenty four hours? Oh no, oh no, homie! I would drive straight through. I would meet this guy in a hotel casino in L.A. and, and I would turn around and I would drive straight back. And so it was two and a half days uh, turnaround. So you'd be smoking meth the whole time. No, I'd get all jacked up, and uh, there'd be no smoking on the road because you didn't right. want a bunch of paraphernalia right. on you. You didn't want the smell in the car, but. I'd be high the whole time. Yeah, we. I'd drive there. Actually, on the way there, I'd be on the come down pretty much because I, everything I brought back to market, I would sell because the turnaround was like four times. I mean, in terms of the money. Right, you know? right, right. Now, when, so we, when when you stuck the needle in your arm for the first time, what were you shooting? That was cocaine. Oh, dude! And that's the first time you shot cocaine. That was the first time I shot anything. I must have just sent you to the moon. Yeah, that was a train ride. This guy, I remember hearing this noise, and uh, I said, what is that noise? And he said, here it comes. And, man, it was a fucking train ride. Oh, and wow. It put, me right, it put me right. I mean, cocaine, you know, I hear you guys on the show and, and other people that I've known talk about snorting cocaine, and it did this, and, man, I got so high. Man, I never got high off snorting cocaine. Not after the first time smoking it and then, you know, putting it in my arm. After that, you know, putting it up my nose, that was a waste. Right. You know? That was a real waste. But uh, so anyway, <clears throat> I uh, 
after shooting cocaine and then a month later, you know, and I, I was, I shot a lot of stuff that month. Uh, I did heroin the first time. Uh, it was just speedball and all kinds of crazy stuff. But I, I was on my way to California to pick up a large amount of methamphetamine. And I was arrested outside of Oklahoma city with, I think it was like $9,000, uh, cocaine pot, uh, paraphernalia. I mean, it, it was like four or five different felonies. Easily. Yeah. And uh, I was 19. And anyway, at that time, they had enough information to believe I was some type of drug dealer. So they they faxed a warrant to Missouri. And uh, I was growing pot in my apartment in Missouri at the time. Oh. So, uh, so I got arrested on that. <clears throat> arrested on that stuff in Oklahoma and then I got arrested on this stuff here in Missouri I actually came back to Missouri and turned myself in because I bonded out in Oklahoma before they had enough time to put a warrant out for my arrest but anyway man that that a long legal battle well it wasn't that long six months you know legal battle kind of ensued it was like a two-front war you know I had a thing going in Oklahoma I had a thing going here and how that all turned out was uh, my dad actually went down with me to Oklahoma City and uh, like I said, he was a, you know, a high-level government you know, official, and uh, he was warned at the prison here in Springfield at the time. But he went down, and he talked to the prosecutor. And I guess he just told him straight, man. I mean, my dad, my dad has intervened on my behalf many times, but he's never come in and lied about shit. He's come in and said, yeah, he's kind of a fuck-up, you know. And I, I, don't know, I don't know if my dad felt partially responsible or what, but... Anyway, he told this guy, this guy, I remember this guy, my dad was telling me this. He said, the prosecutor was asking, where are you going with all this money? And I told him, you were probably going to California to pick up more drugs. And I'm like, dude, <laughs> fuck, they don't tell him that. You're speculating. You don't even know if that's true. <laughs> well, it was, it was definitely true. Of course. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it was definitely true. But so anyway, what happens, this guy said, well, you know, if uh, you tell Ed to give up any uh, interest in getting the money back and we'll give him a three-year deferred sentence, which basically meant don't come to Oklahoma for three years and don't get in any trouble in Oklahoma for three years and we'll wipe it all away. So they did that. Uh, here in Missouri, I wasn't quite so lucky. I pled guilty to possession of a controlled substance. Uh, there was a manufacturing charge and then a possession charge, so I got charged for growing the weed and then charged for having the weed that I was growing, basically. Uh, so I pled guilty. And on my 19th birthday, no, scratch that, my 20th birthday, I was sentenced to five years of probation. Well, you know, I'm an addict and probation didn't work out for me. Um, I didn't get straight. They gave me every chance in the book. You know, I, I take full responsibility for my actions, and uh, you know, I I ran into some good over the over my course of my criminal history. You know, I I've run into some real asshole cops just looking to screw somebody. I've run into some cops that probably let me get away with too much, but most of the cops that I ran into were good people just trying to do their jobs. Right, you know what I mean. That's good. And uh, that's basically what most of these POs were. They were just trying to do their job. I did have one guy who really fucked me around, but that's another story. I don't hold any resentments <laughs> there anymore. But uh, Dude, anyway. when you listen to all the shit you've done 
before your twenty first birthday, you're like, well, uh, yeah, no hard feelings. <laughs> You know, I'm a live and let live kind of guy. Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah. But anyway, uh, so I, as I said, I uh, they gave me every chance and I blew every chance. So I was sentenced on my 20th birthday to five years of probation. On my 25th birthday, I arrived in prison to start my five-year sentence. So I effectively served five years of probation to the day <laughs> and then got convicted and sent to prison. Good Lord. So, and in that time, though, I did have to go serve a 120. And what a 120 is, that's a euphemism for 120 days. And what you do is you go into the Missouri Department of Corrections for 120 days. Uh, my 120 day, I had to do a treatment. So I was an inpatient, in prison treatment center. And uh, that was an 84 day program. But anyway, so I did that and that, but when I got out, I was still on probation. You know, they still gave me one more chance. Well, I blew that too. So finally, on my 25th birthday, five years later to the day, I was uh, convicted five years in prison and I had to go start my sentence. So I did about three years total. Uh, so I didn't do hard time, but the, the time I did was hard enough. I'll tell you that, you know, today I go and I talk to, you know, I talk to guys in prison and, you know, there's some cats that have been in there 15, 20 years, you know, and they're looking at me going three years, you know, that ain't shit. Well, that's true, but you know, that's a long time. You know, I don't care who you are. Three years is a long time. Buddy, a week's uh, too long for me. (laughs) That that first night's the longest, but yeah, no, I hear you. Any of, any of it's too long, you know? But uh, <clears throat> so anyway, how my prison went was uh, I'd go in and uh, I'd do I'd follow the rules and then I'd get out because Missouri prisons are just completely overcrowded. And uh, I, but I'd get out and I'd hit the streets and, you know, I, I'd, I'd be in and I would think, you know what, I'm going to get out. And I'm going to do different. And, uh, you know, I'm going to do different. I, and I really believed it. And my parents believed it. And everybody believed it. Man, I'd get out. It wouldn't take long at all. And I'm doing the same stuff. And, you know, it's untreated addiction to alcoholism, right? You know, I'm not getting any treatment or anything on the inside. And when I get out, it's right it's right back to where I was. I'm picking up right where I left off. And so I got out. This is probably the, I think this was the fourth time I'd gotten out. And aforementioned parole officer who was a douchebag, I go into his office and, uh, I'm reading upside the the week before I'd come in and I had U aid for him, giving him a urinalysis and mm-hmm. I had I had pissed dirty. And uh so anyway I go in and I look down and I see he's got my name written and it says something like put a warrant out for him or something. And he comes back in the office and I said, Hey man, I said, uh are you having me arrested? And he goes, Ed, I gotta do it. And I said, Not today. And I ran <laughs> from the whole office. What? Yeah, and I remember him. The I'll never forget these words. He said don't make this harder on yourself, you know, and I fucking ran, got in my car, boop, I was gone, you know, and I was real high at the time, and, uh, you know, I, I got a couple blocks away, I was getting ready to get on the highway, and here come a police car up behind me, you know, he, pull, he pulls me over, and this guy gets out, you know, and this dude's pretty big, you know, like, weight-wise, you know, he's got some girth to him, and I'm thinking, oh, I can outrun this dude. <laughs> I'm going to get this guy. I'm going to get out of here. So this guy comes up. He pulls me up out of the car. 
you know, and he's being real cool and uh, put your hands on the hood, you know, and, and that's when I ran. I said, and I ran and I got about three steps and this this guy was on me and he was a lot faster than he looked for being a big old boy. <laughs> and when he tackled me, he broke his leg. Oh. And uh, so I got um, I got a. I, I got passed out. I got choked out, right? I got choked out by this guy. For, and I, you know, I don't blame him. I'd have choked my ass out too. Heck yeah. Yeah. And so anyway, I'm coming to, and as I'm coming to, I'm getting drugged. And I, man, I'm getting run up one side down the other by this sergeant or whoever the high officer on staff or on that, you know, shift was. Cause he's like, do you know what you just did to my officer? And you did this and you did that. And, you're going to prison for this, you know, and I believed everything he was telling me. And I was like, Oh my God, I just fucked my life up. You know, that little petty dope charge I've been doing time on, that's nothing compared to what I just did to myself. And anyway, I'm getting drugged to the car and <clears throat> I look up and I see this female officer, right? And I had this flash of memory of her pulling up onto the scene right before everything went down, you know, and she had a real just kind of, spacey look on her face and i said hey do you know that guy and she just nodded her head yes at me and i said man tell that guy i'm sorry you know and uh later on during disclosure she did she came through and uh she really kind of saved me from having to do more time than i did on it but anyway man i got thrown in the back of the cop car and you know i thought about killing myself before and uh <clears throat> you know I, i'd even had a half-hearted attempt at taking a bunch of xanax after doing a bunch of speed, thinking that would kill me. And, you know, I later realized after researching that that probably wouldn't do anything. And it didn't. It just passed me out for a while. But, you know, when they put me in the back of that cop car, man, I just went totally selfish on myself. And by that, I mean, I was just like, you know what? I'm done with this. You know, I want to do over. I don't want to be here anymore. And, you know, it's weird because I was able to shut down that rational side of myself, that, that's, that side of myself, which in the past had talked me out of doing something stupid like that. And uh, I just shut it down. <clears throat> and so I got, they took me to, uh, to the holding facility, to the jail, the county jail here in Missouri. And um, I'm sitting there, man, I prayed all night. And uh, I even tried to hang myself on my cell that night. But the way they build cells these days, you can't hardly do that. And anyway, I heard them say, you know, are we going to hand out razors tonight? And, you know, I heard that because I was right across from booking. So I heard all of the conversation going on amongst the officers. And guys said, no, there's too much going on. We'll do it in the morning. We'll do it in the morning. So I prayed all night. You know, I prayed all night that, you know, I, I really thought I was going to die in the morning. And I really thought that I was going to like see my grandmother and see these other dead relatives. And I really thought, you know, I, and I still believe that I don't believe in hell, you know, I believe in life after death. And so anyway, the next morning they handed out razors <clears throat> and, you know, I, this was like probably the worst day of my life. You know, looking back, I, I had, this was a pretty bad day. I, you know, I, I was being held on a DOC warrant, meaning I'd already been convicted of, you know, I was on parole. So I'd already had one felony. And then I've been arrested and I'm being charged with all these other felonies uh, from breaking that cop's leg. And then I'm in a I'm in a jail cell and I'm getting ready to break open a razor, which is another felony because it's dangerous contraband. You know, it's construed as a weapon. 
And so I said, man, if I break this razor open, I got to go through with it. And so I did. And I broke the razor open and I cut my throat and I sliced my throat in two places. And, uh, you know, I, I hit my jugular. I didn't sever it, but I nicked it and I nicked all the, and I severed all these other veins and, Man, if you ever seen the movies where people get their throat cut and they're dead, that's fucking bullshit. Because I was alive. I was oh. alive. I was alive, and I was I was angry. I was angry at Hollywood for having lied to me for all of these years. You know, dude. And, and so, were you bleeding all over the place? Oh yeah, dude. It, I mean, oh. it was like it's like a rooster tail, dude. You know, and I'm catching out of my peripheral vision, and um, <clears throat> so I'm alive and I'm pissed. You know, and so I, you know, I go on to, I cut my, my arms, you know, right across the crooks of my elbows and, uh, I sever all the veins, you know, and I cut myself so deep that I, first I started, you know, my left arm with my right hand cause I'm right handed. And then when I went to cut my right arm with my left hand, all I could operate was my thumb because I had like, you know, cut my tendons and my nerves. And so I wasn't able to operate the rest of my hand. And, uh, so I sat there and I was fully severed, you know, at the elbows. Uh, and I remember just pumping my fists, you know, uh, trying to get all the life out of me and I'm looking through the dorm and I'm hoping nobody sees me, you know? And so anyway, the the next thing I know, there's this cop and he's come to and he's sitting on my chest and he's got his hands around my throat and I'm thinking, this fucking guy's trying to kill me. Right. You know? And then I, I kind of realize what's going on yeah. and I get to, I get to looking around the cells and, uh, man, there's all these cops, you know, four or five of them, six of them drenched in my blood. <sighs> and you know what? Oh, not one of those cops had gloves on and I am, uh, sexually active. I got tattooed. I have a tattoo and I'm a needle user and they know this. And they're saving my life, and they don't have any gloves on, you know. And oh, man. anyway, so <clears throat> so obviously I didn't die. No, <laughs> they, uh, dude. Right? They uh, they held me together. Oh my god! Uh, I got into the hospital, and they stitched me back up, put me together. Um, so then I came to, and I was under, you know, a watch in the hospital, meaning I had like a police escort there the whole time for like three, four days, got out of ICU. And then I went directly to a, uh, a psych ward and I stayed there for like six or seven weeks. And that's when I really got into hardcore, you know, psychotropic meds and Seroquel and all this kind of crazy stuff. And, um, I woke up one day in the psych ward and I laid my head down that night in prison. <laughs> so I went back to prison. Um, what eventually happened with that was the second officer on the scene, the lady who I had mentioned, in her discovery, she explained exactly what had happened. Um, I had a good lawyer. I didn't have a good lawyer. Mommy and Daddy got me a good lawyer. Um, and I ended up getting a two-year Class D felony for resisting arrest. <clears throat> and... You know, real quick, I'll tell you that I eventually I ran into that that guy who was sitting on my chest holding me together. I ran into him later on, about a year later, in prison. He was training to be a correctional office officer, and I went up to him, and boy, he knew my name. He said, Mr. Cohane. And I said, officer, I don't even remember his name, but I said, hey, man, I said, you know, I just want to tell you thank you. 
He, he said, you know what, I'm going to tell you something real quick. He said, uh, we've had one other guy ever try that in the in that Christian County Jail. He said, and uh, the day you did that, I was, after you left in the uh, ambulance, I was there cleaning up your blood. And here this guy come being arrested on like a, a DUI or something. He said, and I looked at him and I said, don't even think about it. <laughs> you know, and it was just weird, the, the sequence of events and everything that happened, you know, if you stacked you know, the odds on all that, it's just astronomical, you know, and now being sober, I look back and I, you know, I see my higher powers hand and all oh, that, Oh yeah. you know, but anyway, man, that was in, uh, that was <sighs> in 2004. Fuck. I got released from prison in 2006. Uh, it's a decade ago to this month right now that I've been incarceration free. I'd love to say that I got out and, um, got sober and stayed sober. I did not. I got out in 2006, you know, I, for a long time I was on probation and parole and, you know, I never pissed dirty for anything except for pot because I would quit everything else, you know, before I got to my PO, but the pot always, you know, it hung with me. And so I just couldn't wait to be free from probation and parole so I could smoke my weed. You know, that was my problem. It was these fucking <laughs> cops messing with me. Just let me smoke my weed. So I got out. Uh, June 28th of 2006 and I was able to finally smoke my weed man and you know uh, not worry about to piss tests or any of that other stuff and it was great oh for like two months man two months it was great and then I woke up one day and I was like what the fuck man I can't believe that I basically went and did all this time in prison and all this kind of crazy stuff just to smoke weed. And now here I am, and it's not nearly as exciting as I was hoping it would be. And, <clears throat> you know, at that point, I still didn't quit using drugs. I just, I tried getting in the military. Um, at that point, they were accepting, you know, people with nonviolent uh, felonies like mine. Um, as it turns out, because of my um, attempted suicide, they don't. They didn't want to put a gun in my hand, you know, for right. whatever, yeah. yeah, for whatever reason. <laughs> Shocker. So, yeah, I know. So I was going to defend my country. Well, whatever. They they didn't want me doing that. So um, I wasn't able to get in the military. I tried getting in the electrical union in St. Louis because I'm an electrician, a residential electrician, and uh, that's right when the housing market crashed. Uh, so that dried up. It just seemed like everywhere I turned, man, it just. Uh, this was this option wasn't working. This option wasn't working. So I, I moved back to Southwest Missouri, and uh, you know I I got really heavily involved with um, oxycotton, you know hillbilly heroin, and uh, I went and lived with this lady who was a legitimate like like millionaire. Like her dad held these patents for this stuff in like Detroit. You know he was a genius. He worked with the automotive industry. And uh, anyway, she had all these these rights to this stuff. And anyway, all we do, man, is she would buy like five or six people's prescriptions of oxycotton every month, and we just lay around and do oxycotton, you know, and and snort Xanax. And um, dude, yeah, that that was like my last hardcore uh, run was an oxycotton run for about five months, I'd say. And then one day, <clears throat> I. Um, I, I know from your show that you had never had any experience with that, but um, I, I was using a needle with the Oxycontin and, you know, some of the highest milligrams you can get are 80 milligrams. Well, I did two of them at once. Dude. And uh, I was high for about 
two minutes <laughs> and then I wasn't high. And at that point I realized, Oh my God, I am so strung on these things. And the ensuing withdrawal and cold Turkey from those things was bad. It was two weeks of no sleep. All you want to do is sleep. Body hurts. Uh, you do anything to get another high, you know, um, I can see why people rob pharmacies and stuff like that. I mean, it just the, the, the relief that you want from feeling this way, it, it was, it was bad. And, uh, <clears throat> anyway, I did though, I was able to cold Turkey. She actually got arrested, which is why we had to cold Turkey. Um, she got arrested and so she had to cold Turkey. So we cold turkeyed for two weeks and then I got out of there and I moved back with my parents and I, I said, you know, I won't do no more drugs. You know, drugs are my problem. Drugs, this drugs, that, um, can I move back home? You know, I'm going to start going to school. And they were like, yeah, you know, just come home. So I went home and, uh, <clears throat> I became an alcoholic. Oh, I mean, I became worse of an alcoholic than I was a needle using junkie. It took about a year and a half. Uh, I destroyed my, uh, my pancreas. I don't, or, or I don't, I can't produce insulin anymore. So I'm a type one diabetic, although it's, you know, they say it's unclassified. I don't really know what that means. All I know is all of a sudden my pancreas quit working. So now I'm a type one diabetic, but you know, a good year and a half of drinking, uh, that's what did it for me. At the end I was, uh, I was drinking, you know, like a half gallon of vodka a day, you know, and I, I'm living in my parents' basement and I have a son who I haven't mentioned in all this. He's now 13. Um, I wasn't a father to him. His mother had moved him to Phoenix, Arizona in the midst of all my turmoil and bull crap. Yeah, for sure. She yeah, she didn't want him around. No. She, did, she didn't want him to see me like that. And uh, <clears throat> so anyway, I'm living in my parents' basement. I got a kid I'm not being a father to. I'm unemployable, right? Um, I don't have a car. I don't have a license. I've got three DUIs. I didn't even, I just skimmed right over that. You know, <laughs> there's just too much criminal history to go into. Just seriously. Three little, yeah. Three little fucking DUIs. Let's not even talk about that. Shit. <laughs> Let's just go to the felonies and the good stuff. But I got three DUIs, you know, so <clears throat> drunk. I'm going to college, barely, barely making it through college. I'm going to this little community college here. And so my last drink was, uh, it was September 30th of 2010, and uh, I was on campus. I was drunk on campus. I was found by the um, security officer. He brought me into the dean's office, and the dean, who later I got to be pretty good buddies with, uh, he's passed away now. His name was Dr. Steve Bierman, a guy, that guy saved my life. But uh, <clears throat> anyway, I'm in there, and... The cops were there, and the paramedics were there, and the paramedics were like, Ed, we got to take you to the hospital. And I look at him, you know, and, and I'm hammered, but I do remember this. I was like, dude, look, I don't have any money to go to the hospital. And so the cop stepped up. The cop goes, well, Ed, uh, I'm going to have to take you to jail. And I looked at that cop, and I said, well, you know what? Then I guess we're going to the hospital. <laughs> and, oh, and, so, and so they took me to the hospital, and – uh you know, though, that, that was it, man. I, I woke up in the hospital and I looked around and there was like a car wreck that had come in while I was passed out and coming to and, you know, broken leg and people are yelling and there's real trauma going on. And I'm, I'm in there 
because I'm drunk at school, right? I'm like 33 years old. I live in my parents' basement. I got a kid I don't pay child support for. I don't have a job. I don't have a car. Unemployable. My parents are just about to kick me out. You know, I had said in the beginning of the show, I had a brother who passed away. He had died basically of this disease, and they just couldn't sit by and watch me die. So I was just about homeless, you know. And and to be honest, I thought throughout periods of my sobriety or my my use that if I was ever going to get sober, I was going to have to be homeless. I was going to have to have hit that bottom of a low to come to. If I were able, ever able to come to, I was really going to have to feel some bad consequences because I'd been to prison. I tried killing myself. I'd been to an institution, you know, all of the, you know, jails, institutions, and death. Yeah. I'd done it all, you know, kissed death. Hadn't died, obviously, but and nothing had gotten me sober. And that day laying in the hospital, man, I was just like, this is just fucked up. And so <clears throat> it was about three days later, I went to AA, went to an AA meeting, because <clears throat> at the end, alcohol was my master. And... um you know, I got a sponsor. Um, I'm not going to say that the first meeting I thought, oh, this is it. I'm home. You know, that wasn't it at all. You know, nobody goes to AA on a winning, right? Um, but I did feel a little better. And I felt a little better because I was able to look my parents. I was able to look my other loved ones in the eyes. And I was able to honestly say, I'm trying to do the right thing here. I'm actually trying to get better. And I'd never been trying to get better. I'd been maybe trying to look like I was getting better just so everybody would leave me alone and I could get loaded in peace. But for the first time, I was trying to do something different, you know. And uh, I got this guy, and it was actually his dad who's not even in recovery. He recently said at a meeting, which his dad said to him, that if you want something you've never had, you got to be willing to do something you've never done. Yeah. You know? and, yeah. And that's, you know, that's exactly what I was doing, you know, and uh, so I got a sponsor, I went through the steps, you know, I had the, I had the uh, spiritual awakening, kind of of the educational variety, but real quick, I'll just touch on that, I was, it was the day after doing my, it was the day of doing my fifth step with my sponsor, I went home, and like it suggests out of the AA book, I meditated for an hour, went, reviewed my step work, and then I took my sixth and my seventh step right then. And I was laying on the couch, <clears throat> and all of a sudden, my mind was just blank, right? And, and it was weird, and it felt unnerving. And so immediately, I started conjuring up just some fucking thought, you know, some schemes to get my head going again. And then I just kind of let it sit in a minute again, and it was calm. And it was serenity, and I never had that. It was quiet. My head was quiet. You know, they talk about when I, when, I, when I was out using, I never wanted anybody to know what was really going on in my head because at any point in time, I was thinking, I want to be more fucked up, you know? And I knew that that was crazy to, to be thinking like that, but that's how I always thought. And for the first time, man, I didn't need to be fucked up. And I couldn't remember... Right, I couldn't remember the last time I had been thinking about using or wanting to use or drink. And it could have been an hour, it could have been a day, it could have been a week, I don't know. The point is that I lost track and I wasn't obsessing about using. And uh, man, that, 
that had never happened. You know, I, I used to have some friends, and we all thought we were pretty smart. We'd sit around and thinking about, we need to get sober, you know, and we'd be all fucked up or whatever. Man, oh, I tried thinking my way out of it. I tried. I even tried using my way out of it. Like I thought that maybe if I got so high, I would scare myself into going. Oh, let's. We can never do that again. You know, we almost died. No, that didn't work either. Nothing worked. Nothing ever came close to working. And after a few months of programming and uh, working the steps with a sponsor, that obsession was gone, and I was sold. I was sold on the program. You know, from then. And so anyway, that was in 2010, and I had four years of good recovery. Um, I graduated. You know, I said I was almost dropped out of school, man. I ended up, uh, I graduated. I got my associates. Then I got to my bachelor's, and then I went and I got my master's in applied anthropology. Um, I ended up studying ex-offenders who, you know, get out of prison and recidivism and desistance. You know, what, what sends people back versus what keeps people out. Um, you know, and then it's funny because employment is a, is a, is really connected to recidivism and, you know, that's a big thing. It's a big bar for successful reentry. Um, a lot of people getting out with criminal convictions are having a hard time finding work and I get it, you know, I'm not saying that, oh, you know, let's give all the convicts jobs. I just, there's some of us man, who have really flipped it around. Uh, and who've went out and gotten the letters behind our name, or some of us haven't, but we're just trying really hard to do the right thing. And man, when you get kicked over and over and over again, and you're trying to do the right thing, you're trying to pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you know, uh, eventually, man, it takes a toll. It takes a toll. And I'll tell you, man, that's I, I've relapsed. I had relapsed uh, three times, uh, like I said, over the last 18 months. Um, and at the time, I didn't think uh, I'm going to relapse. At the time, I was just irritated because a lot of people in, gradu- my, in my graduate program were finding employment, and I wasn't. And that uh, was really just wearing on me. And I wasn't talking to my sponsor about it. And I wasn't talking to my sponsor about it because I would sit in meetings and I'd hear people talk about real problems. And I would think, man, these are luxury. This little sissy shit that I'm, you know, complaining about. Oh, I can't get a job. You know, that's really bullshit. Well, anyway, I didn't share it. And eventually I relapsed on it. Yeah. And, you know, so, and I did that a couple of times. Um, but anyway, and then, so today, you know, I, I, I do, I got a new sponsor. Not that my old sponsor wouldn't do anything right. It's just, I wasn't seeing it very often. So I got a new sponsor, which keeps me more accountable. And so today, man, I, I work at the post office. I do all this recovery. Um, I sit on the board of a nonprofit called Reentry and Resources where we help ex-offenders getting out of incarceration to get their identification. Uh, to you and I, that doesn't sound like a big deal, but when you get out, you have no money, no job. Um, you don't have a birth certificate. You can't get a Social Security card. You can't get a license. I mean, it's, it becomes like a, a catch-22, you know, this cycle of, I can't get this and I can't get that, you know, so we intervene on that. And I also sit on the labor board of the NAACP here locally where they kind of use my research on um, ex-offender employability to promote ban-the-box legislation here in town. And then just most recently, and this is, you know, God really coming in, is that same uh, college I told you about that I got drunk at and, uh, you know, had to go to the hospital from, uh, they asked me to come back as a teacher 
and uh, teach applied anthrop or teach anthropology there. And then the other college, the Missouri State University, where I got my BS and my MS from, they too have reached out and said, we want you to come teach for us as well. So, Wow. H HP, baby. HP, yeah. baby. Oh, yeah. my God. Yeah. Dude, yeah. I'm exhausted. Yeah. <laughs> Fuck. Dude, I feel like I watched, you know, I, I feel like I did the, 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 like, right after the movie Flight. You know, fucking exhausted, dude. It was so, wow, yeah. man. Like this has got to be the wild, one of the wildest stories I have heard. Um, man, there's you jam so much in an hour, and there's so much more. And man, I I, I thank you, man. Thank you for sharing that your truth, because that was like some that was hardcore, man. That's truth, and then some. Um, I, I, I really don't know where to begin, man. It's, it's, I'm, I'm dumbfounded by what you've been through and what this disease is capable of taking someone down to whittling them down to nothing. You know, it's just, it's unfathomable. You know, Oh, it's, there's a, you know, everybody's got their line of something they won't do, you know, and, <clears throat> it's almost like slippery soap principle. You know, you, you do something a little bad and then the next time, you know, that's not so bad. <clears throat> and then maybe you do something a little bit more bad and a little bit more bad and a little bit more bad. And then that line, which you once would not have crossed for anything, you fucking turn around and you've crossed that thing, you know, 10 actions ago. And, and it is, man, it, 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 it I'm not going to, blame anybody for my addiction or anything you know i did it those are my choices i put myself in those positions i did i don't blame anybody but it is fucked up where it will take you man <laughs> it's, it's, it's crazy i was listening to katrina king last night and she was talking about nobody grows up wanting to be an addict <laughs> or an alcoholic or smelling like jail when she said that i was laughing my ass off so i was like no shit people don't get that you know you stink in jail but it's true man you know you're not sitting up in school in the third grade talking about i want to be a needle using junkie who breaks cops legs who lies and steals from his parents and everybody else around him just because he wants to feel better, you know? But, man, that's what happens. All of a sudden, you look around, and it's like, oh, my God. And for me, man, it's like, what have I become? Oh, shit, I don't want to think about that. We need to use more yeah. so I don't have to think about that, you know, and go commit more debauchery. So, Well, I don't think that it has anything to do with, like you said, it's, it's, we don't, we're not making conscious decisions uh, you know, we're almost, how do I put this? It's, I want to, you know, I need to put blame where it needs to go, right? Like, for example, I own all my actions just like you do. Every decision I made, you know, I hold myself accountable for all the consequences that I had to face. Um, but at the same time, there is that, that facet of it, that acknowledgement. And just like Katrina's story yesterday, that acknowledgement that they, that this is a disease, that mm -hmm. this is not a moral failing, and that like many of us, when the lines we said we'd never cross, you know, by the time we get to the other side, you realize you've crossed all these lines, and it was almost as though it, it, you never even thought about it. Like 
the last time you thought about it is when you said, "I'm not. I've, I never do that." And then in the middle of, <laughs> and then in the middle of it, you're, you're it, it, it never even you, that thought never crosses your mind, right? Oh man, yeah. I said, shit! I said I'd never do this, um, exactly. and and you're already too deep into it, man. And there's just listen. There's so much about your story that needs to be heard, that needs to be told, that that people need to connect with. Um, you know, you know your son. You know, I've got I I man, I'm out myself here right now. Um I've got a 20-year-old son I've never seen. You know, um Really? Yeah, man. I feel you. And you know, it's it's uh I've never talked about this on a podcast and and uh you know, my 13-year-old daughter I I've given her everything. Everything I have. I got sober when when whew, when when I got clean, she was born and it, she was my lifeline, right? I, I forced myself to, you know. Her mother told me, "You've lost me, and you're not getting me back, mm-hmm. but you got a shot here. So you need to get clean for your daughter, or I will take her from you, and you will never see her again." And all I could think of was just flashing back to a life. Of 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 a child who doesn't have a father, you know, who's not who who the last time I saw him he was one year old, and knowing what what you what you went through and what you were going through, that that touched me, man. Because if I stopped, if I start to think about all the things that the disease has come between me and X. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's the last thing on my list of of amends and regret and shame that I live with, you know. Um, and the only time, the only people I talk with to are, are like, I'll share about it in a meeting. I'll talk to my sponsor, and I I you know I'll talk to my wife about it. But I keep it close to the hip, man. I keep it close mm-hmm. to the hip because it's something that I, it brings a lot of shame and 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 uh, regret into my life and 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 I know that today what I'm doing and what you're doing and how we are affecting other people's lives by actively participating not only in our own recovery but in the recovery of others we have to do this we have an obligation to help those before us who are so lost who are in so much pain who are so consumed by this horrible disease that if we don't you know share our truths you know we come out of the the behind from behind the veil of anonymity and and share our story and our truth the changes that we have seen happen up until now wouldn't have happened man right you know i mean who's to say we'd be here right now even having this conversation if we hadn't put ourselves out there in into the public and and embraced you know what is out there for us the positive the recovery the love the hp god everything we we have to connect with it on every possible level that you can you know whether it's in the facebook group whether it's on this podcast whether it's going to meetings whether it's going to jails whether it's teaching at schools you know it's it's wrapped it's had its it's 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 hands around your neck for so long and i you know i stare at this picture of you on your skype and in, at at first, I saw the scar on your neck, and mm. wondered, you know, if that was like an old tattoo or something. And as soon as you got into your story about being in jail, and I went, "Oh my God, that's what that that's what that scar is from, man." Mm-hmm. 
you know. Yeah. It was a bad day, man. <laughs> bad day. A lot of bad days, brother. A lot of bad days, but uh, so listen, man. Um well, I feel like I just time warped and uh I'm gonna pull myself back in here. Uh that's all I think that's awesome, man. That's cool. Thank you, Ed. Thank you yeah. for 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 you know being there for me and and wow you've really your story has just so impacted me right now in this moment uh a lot going through my mind a lot going through my mind so i'll tell you real quick just to so two things my son right five months after getting sober his mother out of the blue called from uh, arizona and she said i'm ready to bring jonas back and I said, okay, you know, and I didn't make any promises or nothing, but, and since she's been back now, he's 13, he just had his 13th birthday, uh, he doesn't know that side of me. He knows of it. You know, that was something else where he had been back about a year, and I had asked his mom, I said, look, man, I don't want this kid growing up, and then finding out all this stuff about me, then having to reevaluate his opinion of me when he's, you know, whatever, 12, 15, 20 years old. I said, I just want to come true and tell him everything. And she said, just do it. And I did. And uh, that's, uh, that's just had an amazing um, impact on our relationship. And now I consider myself to be his ambassador to truth. I always tell him that because I'm like this anthropologist, this weird social scientist person with all this chemical background and all this shit. And I tell him everything. I'm talking prostitutes, sex, drugs all of it you know and the one thing his mother and i tell him a lot is that you know people will dr- use drugs habitually obviously because they like the way it feels but you know we go further than that and what is that that's because people don't like the way they feel normally and hopefully if we're bringing up our child separately you know his mother and i are good friends but we're you know we we each have our own significant other um if we bring him up to feel good about himself and to nurture and foster him where he needs to be and to punish him where he needs to be. We're hoping that if you bring somebody up and they feel good enough normally, then they won't seek out drugs and alcohol to make themselves feel better. You know, and that's something that we really strive towards. And then the other thing which you touched on about outing ourselves, <clears throat> it was a month ago um, I delivered a talk on recidivism in my, my graduate work to uh, – this criminal justice panel at Missouri State University. And anyway, I got I got interviewed, and I got my my freaking picture on the front page of the local newspaper with my criminal history and my drug abuse history, like front page, you know. And I was just laughing at myself, thinking, man, what are the odds of that? You know, <laughs> six years ago, you had told me, and it was a good thing yeah. that my name was going to be in the paper, my yeah. picture was going to be in the paper, and. I just would have said you're nuts, you know, but anyway, man, HP, baby, HP. It is, man, and, and it's these success stories, they are so beneficial, so helpful, so needed. There's, you know, the outpouring of love and support that I get from the listeners, you know, especially like I, I got so many messages yesterday for from Katrina's story. It was so powerful. Yeah. People really, they really connected with it, regardless of, you know, whether or not you've gone through the hell that you and Katrina have gone through, um, it's it's still 100% relatable. And the yets of 
where I could absolutely where this could take me if I don't arrest this development, this behavior, this this part of me that is that I have to embrace and I have, I have to accept that there is a part of me that is vulnerable, that is connected to a disease that is a disease, and that untreated, I'm just a walking time bomb. It's just a matter of time before I am back, you know, doing God knows what, man, you know. Um, Absolutely. And, and now you've got five months, and you're working at the post office, and you're, you know, um, you're speaking at schools, and uh, you're being invited. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's true, eh? <laughs> You know, um, what do you think is different this time from all the other times? You know what, man? I, I wasn't. I won't say that I was on a pink cloud for four years, but I had four great years of recovery. I mean, I had some stuff come on. There was some death. There was relationships uh, failed, and all that kind of stuff. But you know, I really thought that <clears throat> I was going to get these these letters behind my name, right? These degrees, right? And that was going to somehow <clears throat> wipe away my felonious past in the eyes of potential employers. Which would then put me in some type of monetary success, right? And when that didn't happen, I felt like I had just been led down this path, and then all of a sudden, er, the fucking rug was pulled out from under me, right? Um, so I had to really reevaluate what is important to me. Um, what, um, what do I have to do in order to feel successful? Like my own ideas of personal success. And uh, also, I had to figure out that no matter how small something is in my head, I got to get that shit out. Because if I don't, it will fester. And I can tell you that each time I'd relapse, the thought, you know, to relapse or whatever, was months in advance before the actual relapse. And it didn't start with, I'm going to get fucked up. It started with, God, that pisses me off. Or something like that, right? It, didn't, it wasn't that big of a deal. And I didn't share whether my ego was in the way or whatever it was. For whatever reason, I didn't share what was going on in my head. And eventually, it ate me up. And then all of a sudden, using sound, it didn't sound like such a bad idea. And so this time, I would say that uh, in terms of, you know, I've really kind of reevaluated what success means to me. And um, I've also, you know, like I said, I have a, a new sponsor that I share whatever's going on in my head. If I don't share it at a meeting because perhaps it's not meeting appropriate, then I call him and I talk to him about it, no matter how trivial, all of it. Um, I'm not willing to take the chance anymore. Maybe somewhere along the way, I put something else in front of my recovery. If you'd have asked me, I would have said, no, I'm not. But which, which, which wolf was I feeding, right? Mm. Uh, I was feeding one of them <laughs> in a recovery. And at the time, I didn't know it. You know, I thought I was doing God's will and all that kind of crazy shit. Um, today, I share what's going on in my head, no matter what. That's so powerful, man. That's you know, it's all just this this horrible, horrific poison that is just running through our veins until we open our mouths. The minute you speak your truth, you know, the the, the venom is released, and you know, we don't we don't identify with that so many of us don't identify with that because you start to justify and rationalize why somebody else wouldn't be interested in you sharing your truth 
Totally. And that's just the disease telling you, you don't want to share that. Nobody's interested in that. You know, that's petty bullshit. Absolutely. And, and you got, you have to get, you have to crush that itty bitty shitty committee that, <laughs> that fucking runs rampant in your head. And it is, dude. <laughs> I've never heard that. Uh, I'm using that. The itty bitty shitty committee yeah. recently reported. Dude, and yeah, absolutely. And the thing oh, is, yeah. the thing is, at first, just like you talk about, it's real subtle. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And then it gets louder and it gets louder and it gets louder. Yep. And then you're using. Yeah. Because that's how you drown it out. Right? Instead of going, dude, I'm hearing voices, man. Yeah. <laughs> you, you know, know I. <laughs> we've been we've been going here for a while and i know that i'll share this real quick my last relapse man um january 13th heroin sounded like a good idea and i've only done heroin twice before in my life i relapsed for less than 24 hours and then i woke up in the er i had went out the night before on an od and i was in the shower all night for eight hours my girlfriend, who's an RN at a treatment center, found me the next day, uh, and she stayed with me. You know, and she didn't resuscitate me. The the, the paramedics did, but um, yeah, they came in, man. And then I woke up in the hospital. I'm like, what the fuck happened? You know, and uh, I guess I had some tainted heroin. Uh, they said it was cut with fentanyl and. Um, there was a lot of bad heroin go, or by bad, I mean super good heroin go around. But the trip about it was like my parents came in, you know, and they're seeing me at the ER and stuff. And for a while, everybody non-program in my life who found out who who knew about it, none of them believed I wasn't using, like I, that I hadn't been using, right? You know, because none of them understand. Right. It's a drink. It's a shot of heroin. It's whatever. It's the same to me. I'm an addict and I'm an alcoholic. Anything to make me feel different. But yeah, that bad, that bad, uh, or that last uh, relapse, man, that one had some consequences. You asked what was different. That was another thing, man. This last relapse, the two before were real short, you know, I got danced out there and I came right back into recovery less than a week later. Uh, paid no consequences. This one, I almost lost my life. So yeah. that's, something, that's something else that's different, man, is that, you know, I fucking, I almost, I almost died. Dude, your your parents, seriously, <laughs> my God, they the roller coaster that they oh have been, God. and they're not addicts, no, so they don't get it, man. They just no. they just got to watch one of their sons die from it, and another one, you know, spend years, yeah, spend years, uh, whether or not that was going to happen or not, and and wow, you our, know? our our relationship today is stellar, my folks and I, man, it's. It's fantastic. That's yeah. another, That's one of the greatest things about my recovery. But anyway, that's for a different time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, well, let's start shutting down here, man, because seriously, we could deviate into that real quick. Yeah, there's a lot um, of shit. <laughs> a lot of shit. <laughs> All right, I'm going to ask you the, the, the closing questions that sure. uh, we share for our newcomers. Um, and the first one is always, what was keeping you from getting clean or staying clean when you first got introduced to recovery? I always had another idea. I always had another idea of control. You know, in the big book, there's seven words, man, and they're the most impactful seven words, and they describe me so well. And it's in that part where they're talking about control, and it says, take a trip or not take a trip. You know, like I had, I was, I had run out of ideas on how to use and control it. 
and uh, I don't know if you want to call that my ego or what, but I always had another plan. Yeah. And at the end, the plans were all done. I had tried. I had exhausted every idea I had, and I had no more ideas. And I guess I would. I had just hurt enough. I'd finally hurt enough. I'd finally, you know, I talk to people and I say that, you know, when when the the pain and the sorrow or whatever that you're using over, when the pain and sorrow that the using causes becomes greater than that pain, then that's when you know you're lost. And that's where I was at, man. The pain from using was greater than the pain that using was covering up. Yes, absolutely. That is a, and it is. It's such a beautiful saying, you know. Uh, you know, you'll stop uh, when the pain of continuing is greater than the pain of change. Then you'll finally, you'll finally start your journey. It's a hundred percent true. Yep. So number two, at what point did you have that spiritual awakening, that aha moment inside of recovery when you accepted that you were powerless over drugs and alcohol for the first time, but had developed the hope that you could now recover? You know, I'll tell you that <clears throat> I, that's when I was laying on the couch when I had told you before about the day of doing my fifth step with my sponsor. And, um, you know, my life had been getting a little bit better. I'd been feeling a little bit better. But when I couldn't remember when the last time I had been, I had been obsessed, right, that obsession of drinking or doing drugs or feeling different, when I couldn't remember the last time I had thought about that, uh, when, that when that happened, I was totally sold on uh, this, this sobriety shit. <laughs> all those... <laughs> All, all the weirdos in the rooms, everything they said, it was all fucking true. And I was like, shit, man. And, you know, I got a friend named Sarah, and we talk about it. She's like, this shit's like voodoo magic. And I'm like, no shit, it is, you know. And uh, I would have never gotten to experience it had I not just kept on going on, you know, kept trying to do it, kept doing it, even though I didn't understand the shit I was having to do. You know, my sponsor was like, just do it, your mind will catch up. Do it, your mind will catch up. He was exactly right. You know, I started feeling better. And then all of a sudden, when I looked around and I realized things were better, I couldn't deny it anymore. Things were better because of, you know, a higher power that I had found through the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. Dude, that's powerful, bro. (laughs) I love it, man. The voodoo. Voodoo magic, baby. Voodoo magic. Uh, It's true, man. I don't know how it works, why it works, you know, none of it. I I have no explanation to why it does. I just know it does work. So I just do what I'm told. Yep, me too. So number three, do you have a favorite book you would recommend to a newcomer you read in early recovery? (laughs) You know, for the last several years, because I was a grad student and and before I was working at Missouri State, people would ask me, so what do you read these days? Be like, you know what, I'm a grad student. I don't have time to read for pleasure, you know. (laughs) And I've, what I've found out since being a grad student is I just really don't like reading that much. So I'm going to stick with the tried but true, uh, the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. It saved so many lives. It describes me to a, to a T, man. I read through that. There, it's totally undeniable that I am an alcoholic. I'm an addict too, but it doesn't matter. For me, it's the same program one way or the other. So uh, the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous is the book that I would recommend. Alcohol is a drug, brother. Yep. It's all the same. Yep. All right. So what is the best suggestion you have ever received? Leave no stone unturned. Um, 
that to give that some context that came from the mouth of my first sponsor when I was working through my fourth step and you know people say oh god the fourth step this and that oh it's so bad you know um we're talking about he said man he said start with your worst first meaning put down the one thing you don't want to tell nobody put that thing down first and then the rest of it ain't shit compared to the first one <laughs> said it's in just don't leave anything out he's like if you put enough energy into thinking about something and justifying should i put it down should i not put it down just put it down put it down we'll talk about it boom done leave no stone unturned leave nothing to chance you will increase your chances of staying sober by talking about all of it. I love it. So number five, if you could give our newcomers only one suggestion, what would that be? Leave no stone unturned. Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> you know, that that represents so much more than what I just said. But, you know, that 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 buddy of mine I was talking about earlier whose father told him, if you want something you've never had, you got to be willing to do something you've never, never done. done. Mm-hmm. And uh, all of those things uh, ring true. Um, I guess it's, you know, it, they both kind of encapsulate the whole give it your all, you know. Give it your all. Try your hardest for, you know, three months. If 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 your life doesn't change, you can go back to that shit. It's waiting for you. Yeah, you know, 90 and 90. At the end mm. of those 90 days, we gladly refund your misery. <laughs> That's exactly right. In fact, you're going to probably get twice the amount of misery if you go back out. So, yeah, man, I, I, I believe that. Oh, all these cliches, man. You know, I always say this. They're like, they're like good stuff, oh. I go, look, man, I just regurgitate to the best of my ability. Nothing's original here. That's right, man. I, I'm standing on the shoulders of giants, man. I, none of these thoughts are mine. They're yeah, I like that. Yeah, I like it. I'm standing on the shoulders of giants. Wow, that might be the that might be the uh, oh, the title of your show. There you go, standing man. Standing on the shoulders of giants. I love it. Yeah. Boom, boom. Ed, man, let's give another big uh, HP baby. HP baby. HP this, baby. This was just un. This knocked my socks off, bro. I. Uh, I got pretty vulnerable on this one, man. And uh, you did, yeah, you did. I, I, Thank man, I'm you. really, I'm really glad that you were. Isn't that weird? How shit like that just happens sometimes. All of a sudden, the floodgates open, and you're like, "Fuck it, dude." That's exactly what just happened. I just couldn't, couldn't hold it in anymore, man. You know, that's, I just, I got this life that everybody sees, and you know, I got this. I'm married, and I have this amazing family, and my beautiful daughter's 13 years old and and i got this podcast and at 13 years clean and sober and you know i can just list my gratitude is just huge and then there's this facet of my life where i just miss my son so much yeah man and i and i love him and and there isn't you know a day that doesn't go by and a year that doesn't go by where i don't think about him and and you know his birthday is two days away from my daughter's. That's the another crazy. Wow. It's crazy, dude. It's just crazy, you know. And yeah, it is. If he, you know, if if you hear this this recording someday, Jordan, and it's just me, your dad telling you I love you. So it's just it's wild, man. It's wild. So here we are, you and me, man, doing this thing. Here we are, baby. All right. So, uh, wow, folks, we have now reached the end of this unbelievable episode. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for joining us. <laughs> and as we say here in Costa Rica, Pura Vida. Pura Vida. 
Thank you for joining us on the Share Recovery Podcast. To check out the show notes page on this interview or to thank our guests for sharing their story, go to www.thesharepodcast.com. While you're on the website, don't forget to sign up for our free newsletter to stay up to date on the latest news, podcasts, and interviews. Want to be one of our guests and share your story? Then go to our website and click on the Share Your Story button. We share our inspiring recovery stories every Tuesday. So subscribe to our show on iTunes or Stitcher Radio to get your free weekly download. We'll see you then. The opinions shared on this show reflect those of the individual speaker and not of any 12-step fellowship as a whole. And though we discuss 12-step recovery and the impact it had in our lives, we do not promote or endorse any 12-step anonymous program.